of, of, of adulthood. And, and, but there's a, as I was pondering this, there's a reality I don't think we can escape. And, and I think this is maybe from my age, but I think this, it is a new world out there than even 20 years ago. Things are changing so rapidly in the landscape, especially in the spiritual world. That, that I think we forget just the scope. I think when we think back and just, I was po- kind of pondering for today what I was going to do and just, I was thinking back and just realizing, man, they're at a different place, a different time of this, in this world. And, and so I'd encourage you to come back. But even this week, I was, uh, a new survey just came out from the Pew Institute and, and they do research all around the country and the realization there, they pointed out that this group of nuns, meaning the people who when they go into, for example, a hospital and, and they check what religion are you, over, I think it's like 26% of the people in the United States now are putting the nuns, something in that category. And the fastest growing group of nuns is in that 18 to 30-year-old range. And I think we forget that. And I think it calls for us to not stick our heads in the sand as a church. And I think too often we go, oh, they're going to come back. But even if they do, the choices that are made by young people out there that wound them for the rest of their lives and the impact. So we need to be living differently in, in light of that. But as I was pondering what I want to do today, and I, I knew I needed to step out of the series we were at, and, and I began by just asking myself the question, what do I wish that I knew? Or would have maybe grasped in a deeper way when I walked away from that high school and into the college world that I experienced? Uh, matter of fact, I thought back to the fall of 1973 when I entered this Christian in- institution of St. Cloud State University. And uh, it, it really wasn't so Christian, but one of the first electives that I had in the fall, I go to this class, and it's a philosophy class. And, and within about the first week, we discover that the professor in this class, he was a Presbyterian minister who had become an atheist. And that was the first introduction for me to that college. And there were probably six or seven other Christians along with myself in that class. And we tried the debate for a week or two. And pretty much after that, we kind of shrunk back into our seats and we were kind of silent the rest of the quarter. Um, So the question, how... Or what could have been different even in my life? What, what could have, how could I have been prepared differently in, in terms of the circumstances and heading off to that a different world? So this morning, I just want to take a few minutes and I want to give you three things which I wish that I would have known or understood in a different way that I think would have helped me in some form. And so I call them just the preparation for life, and I think this is going to apply to all of us. And the first one there, if you're following along in the sermon outline, I said it this way. I wish that I would have known that knowing about God doesn't equal knowing God. This idea that, I think for me, in Sunday school and youth group, there was this emphasis on knowledge. 
that, that somehow it didn't translate into a relationship with the Father. And I figured that out. I knew that. But, but there was this place where I don't think I, we talked about it enough. But, but I, I think back, and one of the illustrations in my life where I think this was so true was, uh, was a relative that I knew pretty well. The person would come up and visit us and stay at my mom's place. And this is an individual in our family who he loved the Bible. He loved the written word. He knew the Bible more than I ever will. And But there was a contradiction in this man's life in that he knew the scriptures, but he really didn't love people well. And he could define all the right moral truths, but but he couldn't care for his kids, adult kids, and his grandkids. And it was so evident, even as a young man, for me. And, And I think for me, that's a reminder even now. Parents, adults, young people are watching us and they're evaluating us and and they're asking the question, is your faith just a religion or is it really a relationship with Christ? I I think they watch us in hard times and when things don't go the right way, they're they're looking and checking us out and going, are they turning really and, and walking with Jesus in this journey of faith or are they just talking the game? Young people are evaluating older people in their faith. But I want to point to a text here that really points this this out in terms of the difference of of a relationship in just knowledge and versus relationship. In this passage, this is from John chapter 8, just a few, 10 verses earlier in 844, Jesus calls this group of leaders, basically, you're the children of of Satan. So, so there, this is an antagonistic kind of clash between Jesus and these men. But he answers it this way in 854. If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is for my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him. Now that word know in the Greek is a word called gnosko. And I'll explain a little later. But then Jesus switches and he uses a different word. We don't catch this in the English Bible. But I know, which is adu, is pronounced adu. And if I say that I do not know adu him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know, which is adu again, know him and I keep his word. So he's speaking to this group of men. And he declares to these Jews that you do not know Jesus. And, and he's, he's in this first one, gnosko, it's really a, a verb. It's the idea that you know some knowledge. You don't, and he's even saying you don't even know really the exact knowledge of Jesus, experiential knowledge. But when he switches it and says, I know him, do him. This is actually an adjective, but really what it's implying or what it means, it's the idea of a relationship, that I know relationship, I have a relationship with my Father in heaven. See, Jesus was very pointy. He said, you know about God, guys, but you don't know my Father. 
And I look back and I go, I wish I would have understood that piece of what it means to have a father in heaven that knows me, that, that he, he wants us to know him, not just about him. He wants us to know him, to trust him, to walk with him, to put our faith in him. It's something that I think would have changed my life if I would have been in those younger years. But there's a second one I thought I would have liked to have known as well. Number two, I said it this way. I wish I would have understood and been encouraged to pursue mentoring relationships with others older than myself. Now here's one of the frustrations that I have growing up. I wish my father would have been one of those people, would have pursued me in a mentoring relationship. Because the reality is, is when you talk to men my age in 50s and 60s, and what I find is that they look back and they go, their fathers aren't the main influencers in their lives. And, and for whatever reason, there's this pattern, in, especially in men, maybe more so than women, this idea that we don't pursue a relationship with our children. We don't become mentors to them. We speak at them versus speaking with them. And I think too often there's this kind of hands-off attitude that we have as parents of going, yeah, I just don't know how to have a spiritual conversation. Well, we got to learn that. we got to look at it. But matter of fact, there's a text that says that we need to do it. Look at Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and within your soul and on with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hands, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes, and you shall write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. And the summary of that is this. We are called to mentor a generation that comes behind us. And that starts with the first priority is us loving God with all of our hearts, but we are to be expressions of, of that love to our children, and we're supposed to do all those things. Of those, I, I think it just implies this deep mentoring-type relationship that needs to take place. And by the way, this is directed toward all of Israel. This just isn't pointed only to parents, so it would imply to every adult here as well. But i, I got to make this statement that I wish someone would have invited themselves into my life at a younger age. Now, did you notice the way I phrased that? I wish someone would invited me into my life. See, when I look back, the challenge is I didn't get that till I was in probably my late 20s, early 30s, where somebody came into my life in a significant way. And the reality is that in my generation, we don't initiate well. We don't go after a generation that's walking behind us and we, we don't pursue them. We kind of stand there and go, if you want a relationship with me, come and get it. But we need to pursue them. And I think that's a call on our lives is to have those conversations from that Deuteronomy. We are called to do that. I was an illustration of the, the challenges of this. I was uh, putting on a seminar years ago at a previous church and the title of the seminar was called Parents of Parents. 
So this, understand, this would have been grandparents who had children who had children. And we did this seminar of how to try to stir those connections between older and younger. And at the end of the seminar, there's probably somewhere between 40 and 50 there that night, somewhere in that range, maybe 45 or so. But I threw out the question at the very end, and I, and I asked this question. How many of you have had a serious spiritual conversation with your grown daughter or son? Do you know how many raised their hands to that question? Three. Three. And it was a husband and a wife and one other person. But I think it shows the symptoms or the problem, the dilemma that we have is that we are called to reach back to the people behind us and walk beside them to have those conversations and figure out if we don't know how to do it, we got to learn how to do it. But there's one more piece here today that I want to finish on. And I so wish that this would have been instilled in me at a younger age. It didn't happen again until I started, you know, and I started working with a youth ministry, and we're in their late 20s, early 30s, where I finally came to grips with what this meant. And it's number three on your notes. I said it this way. I wish I would have understood the nature of the great lie. The great lie. Let me explain what the great lie is. It comes from Genesis chapter 3. And let me read that and put that on the screen. Look how it reads. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, "Did did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That underlying phrase there, That is the great lie of Satan. And I don't know if we realize this. It says you can be like God and you can know like God what is good and what is evil. Well, the first part of that, what does it mean to be like God? Is that you have the ultimate authority in your life. You're at the pinnacle of your own life. That's what he was telling Adam and Eve. But that second phrase there, you can be like God knowing good and evil. What does that mean? Well, it's frankly, it's this. God determines what's good and evil. So he's telling them, you now as the ultimate authority get to have the right to decide what is good and what is wrong and what is right and what is evil. You claim that right. That was the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve at the very beginning of time and has forced its way all through history, all the way up to to us today. So this spiritual battle, when we talk about a spiritual battle, one of the things, the flesh within inside us of the spiritual battle is this. We keep having this battle as to how do we determine what is good and what's evil. And as autonomous people... We claim that right. We claim that right. 
But I think the challenge is this. Usually what we do is we work on a surface level in this issue. And, and we don't go to a deeper understanding of it. And, I, and I, when I keep hearing Christians debate people out in the world, they stay on a surface plane. And the surface battle for your notes, I said it this, this way. They battle over what it means to be loving and reasonable. See, the world, we don't get that the world has hijacked certain words. I understand words communicate. They tell a story, they give a meaning, and they've hijacked words like tolerant, accepting, love, unloving. And the world is redefined in a way that, that makes us, as followers of Christ, seem unloving, hurtful, unreasonable. Matter of fact, I think it's even gone to the extent on that battle where we're actually unloving people. We're not very loving of people if we have an opinion about certain behaviors that people participate in. See, the explosion of this debate, the church is losing this battle, this argument. And I don't know if we realize, I believe that there's a point in our history in the United States where there is, was a major shift, and I think it goes all the way back to the abortion when abortion was legitimatized back, was it 1973, 72, right in there. And when the culture decided, now people say, well, the courts decided. Folks, the courts reflect the culture. I think we've got to admit that. But they decided that the individual or the mother has the right to decide what is reasonable and what is loving. That is the nature of the lie. And we never realized that the words were hijacked and the church never switched to a deeper debate, a deeper argument. And I don't think people are aware of the deeper battle that was actually taking place. Let me give you the deeper battle for the notes. This is the real issue. Who, who gets the right to determine what is good and what is evil? Now, now here's where I really believe the church has kind of stuck its head in the sand. And, and they believe the church believes that the culture believes in a transcendent truth, that there is truth apart from man. And folks, that's just not true anymore. Now, we, we keep talking about the good old days, the founding fathers, and when you go back to the founding fathers, one of the differences back then versus now, the founding fathers, whether they were unbelievers or believers, they believed in a transcendent truth outside of mankind. That's the difference. But you fast forward to our day and age, you recognize the culture no longer believes that of a transcendent truth that's apart from man. We've, all, we've brought it in, and we've succumbed to the lie that says man is the one that determines what is right, what is good. Or we can actually say this, the one with the most power, the most votes, has the right to determine what is morally acceptable and unacceptable. And so, people with a homosexual lifestyle... It's okay because I get to define what's loving. Who wants to deny love, you know, these days? That's their argument. 
See, living with someone before marriage, it's okay because I get to determine that that's a loving thing to do. And who wants to argue with love, you know? Divorce for any reason. There's biblical reasons for divorce, but I determine, you know what, that I need to be happy and therefore it's reasonable and it's a loving thing for me to do. See, that's the challenge. The lie is said, I claim the right to determine what is good and what is evil. What, how do you deal with that? Do you understand in our culture, there's really only two choices to that question of who gets the right to decide. Let me give them for your, to your notes. The first one is this. Man gets the right to decide what is good, loving, and reasonable. That's what the world has done. They've claimed that right. I have the right to decide. I understand that puts man in an autonomous position of playing God. You can be like God. You can know good and evil. You therefore have the right to decide what is good and evil. But as a follower of Christ, there is another reality. It's the second one there of who gets the right to decide. And I believe this from all the scriptures. God defines the truth that transcends creation. There is a truth out there apart from creation. And he has the right to decide what is good and loving and reasonable. And understand that has been rejected, but we got to call people back and at least tell people the, the, the real contradiction of what's going on. And the challenge, I think, in this, for me, is, again, all too often, you understand on that first view that the world defines Christians have bought into that. People who are born again have bought into that. And they don't believe that God is the giver of, of tr- what is true, what is right, what's noble, what's really loving. He gets the right to decide because he is God. He is God. I wish, looking back, that I would have understand the nature of this question, of this big lie, of the lie that impacted Adam and Eve, and it flowed through history, and it's impacting us more than ever to ever before. That we're claiming the right to be God. I get the right to decide what's loving, not God. But I have to end on this. There's still good news. Because there's kind of a morbidity in that of going, oh man, yeah, that's happening. But I have to say this. God's not surprised. Do we realize that? God's not surprised. And you understand, very back to the Garden of Eden, that because they succumbed to the lie, the great lie, he decided this. I'm going to send my son into this world. And I'm going to reconcile and give them life and give them real truth. And he will be the truth. He will be the one that will transcend all of the sin in this world. I want to invite the elders to come on up too. Uh, We want to serve communion today. 
but this place where God, he's the one that has the right to decide, and he sent his son, and he said, even though this world has believed the great lie that I'm going to send my son, and I'm going to die for these people, and I'm going to give them the opportunity for new life. And that's what we celebrate today, that we have a loving father who still invites us in those times in our lives and we, we play God. He goes, Ken, turn to me. Give your life to me. Repent. Let me be God. See, that's what he wants for us. And, but we want to remember that and the work on the cross today. Guys, I'm going to ask you to hand out the bread. And a reminder that we practice open communion, meaning this, if you know Christ is your Lord and Savior, we would encourage you to participate with us. We want to celebrate, but I would ask that you would just hold the bread until we partake together. It symbolizes our union in Christ. But just pause and ponder and say, God, am I too often maybe playing God when I need to allow you to be God here even today? Let's celebrate and remember what God has done for us.